Hi, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hi, everyone, and you're listening to the 11th episode of the Polit podcast, the podcast for political posits. Hi, everyone. I hope you're well. Thank you very much for joining me. Before I begin, could I just ask you to like, share, subscribe, and please just click on that little follow button. It would mean the world to me. And if you haven't already done so, please go to the Pollitt website and subscribe to the mailing list so you can get lots of exclusive content, which is on the website, which doesn't always make it to podcasts, and also for references and citations for most of the stuff that we discuss. So today, we're going to abandon the usual formula and do something which I'm yet to do. And instead of discussing something that I've already written and put up on the blog, I'm going to freestyle this one and sort of think on the spot. Um, I've got a few notes written down about what I'd like to talk about to you guys today. And that's the politics of the street, which sounds like a really, really crass title. Um, (laughs) But I didn't know quite how else to put it. So this is going to be today's discussion on the politics of the street. So protests, wars, cars, trucks, general transport, people walking, bikes, stone, cement, all of these are connected to the relations of that thing we call the street. In strict political terms, the street has always been a site of action. A really good example of this is, of course, um, Black Lives Matter protests. You always see footage of them on the street. And it's it's the same for sort of the protests we see in Hong Kong, the climate strikes, Extinction Rebellion, Extinction Rebellion, the Gilets Jaunes in France, the Arab Spring, the Euromaiden protests in Ukraine, uh, the Tahir Square, the the protests in Tahir Square, and of course the Occupy movement in what 2012, um, God, which seems feels like yesterday, um, but yeah, all of these protests take place on the street and that is something which connects all of them that they their concern is for public and civic life and this concern their grievances whether or not we agree or disagree with them are voiced in a public space so the use of the use of protest the use of the street is a global phenomenon But what does this actually mean to say that certain kinds of politics, like protests, take place on the street? Let's try and break that down a little bit. So what we see whenever we see a protest on the street is, or sort of any political activity on the street, it doesn't have to be a protest. My mind is sort of instantly drawn to uh, the the celebrations that Nigel Farage and the Vote Leave campaign had on the evening that um, uh, Britain uh, formally left the European Union. I mean, that was in Parliament Square, but that still overflowed onto the street. That's still in a public space. So it doesn't necessarily have to be protest. But what all of these modes of political action have in common is we see an alliance of bodies, and those bodies consist of individuals who are both present and not present. 
What do I mean by this? By this I mean that assembly always concerns an assembly of bodies. Individuals have to assemble together in order to create some kind of political space from which their mutual grievances can be heard. And equally that's facilitated by the individuals who are not present. So I'll just give you two examples of this. First of all, let's say there's a protest about um, uh, migration standards, or let's say there's a protest about immigration um, uh, law and human rights. There will always be individuals for whom that protest is for who cannot attend the public gathering for fear of potentially being arrested and then it being revealed that they are undocumented and then sort of the... the um, uh, the, the, the subsequent action that would occur to them as a result of this. That's the first one. The second one is that in order to have the street, in order to be able to have a space, a public space that is physical itself, that may be occupied by bodies, you have to have street cleaners and you have to have people that lay the paving stones that make the street. You have to have, you know, the police themselves, although they're a bit of a strange presence sometimes. Sometimes they're a godsend <laughs> of a presence. And they put, these individuals permit the space for politics to be open, permit the street to be there, to be occupied. So in this, there's always a bodily sense of alliance or a bodily sense of presence whenever we talk about engagement, whenever we talk about the occupation of the street in order to address either a public grievance or a public concern. So what does that mean to be a body? That's a really, really big question. Two people or three people who I think are fascinating to think about, four people who I think are fascinating to think about in relation to this are, of course, Michel Foucault um, and his notion of the biopolitical uh, that's the first. The second is uh, Giorgio Agamben, I think is fantastic to talk about this, um, the relations between the state and the body. But these two focus more on exactly that, on the relationship between the state and the body and how certain discourses or certain um, uh, structures and structures of structures construct the body in relation to the state. The third person who I think is really important to speak about is Judith Butler. Judith Butler, since writing Gender Troubles in 19, or publishing Gender Troubles in 1990, um, has had a particular rep reputation for her feminist um, literature. Or as much as I do like the feminist work she does, I personally find her grasp of corporeal politics or sort of politics of the body, far more fascinating. And this we can see with her most recent work on uh, the ethics of nonviolence. Um, I think it was called the ethics of nonviolence. I don't know, it's on my bookshelf <laughs> behind me. But in this, there's a rather interesting uh, thing that she looks at, which is uh, the relationship between the body and the self, and how the self is never comprised of just the individual. For example, when we talk about self-defense, she speaks about this sort of frequently, when we talk about self-defense, even the most vehement pacifist would say, yeah, but you know, if someone touches my kid, then you know, you know, then all bets are off. <laughs> but the question is, is sort of like, where does that end? You know, okay, we know that if someone were to hurt your children, then you would no longer be a pacifist. 
we know that if someone were to hurt your family, you would no longer be a pacifist. But what about your third cousin twice removed? And then you'd be like, oh, well, you know, maybe maybe they don't count. <laughs> so the point is, is even if we were to say self-defense, even if we were to say that I can defend myself, immediately, even the most non-violent of individuals include other bodies and other beings as part of that self. And so in this way, we should always remember that whenever there are bodies present, there are always constructions and sort of attachments around those bodies, which are not present. So for this, I say that as far as politics of the street is concerned, and whenever politics opens up in a public space, we must always remember that it's not just the alliance and assembly of bodies that are present, which allow for this particular event to take place, but it's also the alliance of bodies which are not present. So what is it to create a political space? Oh, the fourth person, by the way, um, is Roberto Esposito and his work on, uh, on his work on biopolitics and philosophy. I find this rather interesting because he talks about the relationship between not the body and the state necessarily, but the relationship between the body and the community um, uh, and the relationship between immunity and community and the body. But as far as sort of the creation of the political space is concerned, one of the people who I always turn to is Hannah Arendt in The Human Condition. Here, what she speaks about is the fact that politics can only be brought into existence precisely because there is a space of appearance. And in that space of appearance, individuals can engage in political action stand up, be heard, engage in discourse, and appear, and that appearance allows for the creation of power. What does Arendt mean by power? This is something that she discusses in um, uh, On Violence, and here something that's particularly interesting is that she argues that power is present whenever people engage politically in concert with one another. Whenever people act in concert, there is power. So in this, she doesn't necessarily fall into the into a certain trap of saying that power is strength or power is the the amount of weapons one has, or even uh, uh, the idea that power is force. Something she actually takes from uh, Rousseau in the Social Contract is the notion that force is is something different. Force is is almost. Um, uh, uh, kind of like gravity. It's like a magnetism, almost. Uh, one, There's not necessarily a sense of free will when it comes to force. Although she doesn't actually cite Rousseau, I always thought there was sort of like a small connection there. But anyway, what we see with Arendt is we see that the street can become the site of politics precisely because with these alliances of bodies, what is created is a sense of power is the, the space of appearance that is opened up through assembly, and then that allows for power to bubble up from the surface, or from beneath the surface. And then it's at that moment that grievances can be held, can be heard. It's at that moment that uh, uh, political thinking can become political action. So what we see here is that with the assembly of individuals on the street, we see a collapse of physical space, not sort of materially, but we see a collapse of physical space and the political space widens. 
When I say collapse in physical space, what I mean to suggest by this is that the space between individuals becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, becomes shorter and shorter. And that action in concert, that assembly, provides the space for power and thus politics. And again, that explains how the political space widens when the physical space collapses. This is actually something rather fascinating when we saw the uh, BLM riots, or riots, sorry, the BLM protests. Um, in I've been working on, I've been thinking about um, a BLM, I've been reading too many newspaper articles. Um, <laughs> uh, the BLM protests, both in America and in the United Kingdom, was one of the biggest questions that was uh, put to a number of the protesters was, is it safe to protest during a pandemic? Because, of course, that space, that that um, a shortening of physical space, that collapse, was deemed to be unhealthy. Unhealthy was deemed to be sort of adding to the spread of COVID-19. And so in this, what we saw was the the inability for that space to a uh, physical space to collapse in assembly that would allow for the creation of the political space that would allow for the creation of uh, a political emergence and for that rentian power to come into being so i always found that was rather interesting that was rather fascinating that's something that we saw because one of the greatest critiques of blm at the time was that they're sort of flouting covid restrictions and i think that's what was suggested was that by engaging in assembly with one another to attempt to address grievances, that political space became an existential or an undermining of social existential space. Right to assemble all of a sudden became to the all of a sudden became to become a threat to society at large, and so society had to be defended from these particular protests. What unifies all of these bodies, all of these bodies, whether they're, whenever there is politics engaging on the street, is not always their reasons for being there, and there's not always organic unity. So, for example, something which uh, Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Leclerc have spoken about in Hegemony as Socialist Strategy, um, and, and also in, in other works that they've uh, spoken about this, especially in Chantal Mouffe's For Left Populism, uh, is a concept they call a chain of equivalence. Um, but in this, they argue that there is a requirement to be to have some kind of chain of equivalence between different factions, between individuals who disagree with one another in an agonistic way, in a discursive way, in order for there to be a, a an effective praxis of assembly. But this is also something that Judith Butler discusses in her most recent work, is that how does one create the lack of a bind? How does one sort of overcome the lack of an ethico-political bind, right? You know, we may agree, or some may agree, that uh, there should be a revert to more traditional Christian values in the UK, for example, or just simply more traditional values. How does the... Um, right wing or the far right working class individual achieve this in protest with let's say the second gen second or third generation immigrant who also wants to see the um um the the rewind or wants to see the preservation 
of traditional values, such as law and order, right? When that when one negates the the validity of the other, and this we also see on the left as well, because we can have individuals standing for uh, I don't know uh, um, racial tolerance or, or racial harmony, for example, um, and that might include members of the LGBT community, whereas Equally, you might have members from, in America, for example, from the African-American community who aren't particularly um, thrilled about the notion of LGBT existence and LGBT rights and issues. So how does, how is that circle squared? How is that issue overcome? So there isn't always a, a, a sense of unity between individuals who are engaged in the space of appearance or who have created um, this or taken the opportunity to politically exist in this space of appearance and as such create a politics between them. And I still maintain that what what does unify all of them, it might not necessarily be values, ideas or norms or even policy suggestions or even grievances like you often find at, at, at protests that different people are there for different reasons, whereas the protest might be for a broad topic um, uh, for example, uh, I don't know, um, uh, LGBT rights, for example, if you just take LGBT as the sort of acronym there, you have four different identities of individuals um, and then sort of QI plus. And so people have different reasons for being there. What does unify all individuals, no matter what the protest, what the grievance, what the political motive for assembling on the street is, is the street. It is the street. The street is itself something which acts like a glue between individuals. So why do we create streets? Because we clearly don't create streets for political reasons. Um, the reason why I say that is because you don't often have like streets which are dedicated to sort of just political action. Um, Especially not in Britain anyway, but I think that's because of the rain, to be quite frank. <laughs> um, you wouldn't have much politics taking place <laughs> in that scenario. Why do we create streets, though? And the reason why we create streets is for infrastructural purposes. I think something that we often forget is that livable life, like to live a livable life, requires infrastructure. Quite frankly, disability studies has shown us that technology is always a requisite to engage in a public life. So, for example, even if we want to move on, you know, to move from one place to another, there is the requirement of a pavement for easily moving from one part of the world to another part of the world. Right now we have shoes. Shoes are a require, or in many cases, a requirement for being able to transport oneself from one part of the world to another part of the world. And I think that we often forget that things, infrastructural notions like the pavement or sort of long-standing um, objects uh, or cultural objects like shoes are technology. They might not necessarily think like them. We might not necessarily think of them as technology because they're not like an iPhone or they're not like a flat screen television or like a PS5, but they're, they are themselves sort of the outcome of human fabrication and that makes them technological. So the street is there to aid to the to aid the livability of our lives. It provides the role that almost all infrastructure does. And that is to allow us to live a life 
easier or to allow us to live a more easier life. And I think that's really, really important because I think that means that there is always a certain sense, a, a public sense of the reason for the street's existence. Now, if I look outside my window now, I can see a street below me, and I understand that that is a formulation of technology that allows my private sphere to engage with the private sphere of others and the public sphere outside of those private spheres. <laughs> and I think this is important because what we see with the creation of this kind of infrastructure is that it breaks the traditional public-private divide because it's 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 either both or neither. I'm still trying to think of this. It's both because it connects the private sphere with the public sphere, but at the same time, like my driveway is also part of the street, right? I mean, it might, might not legally necessarily be so, but it's the same material, you know, it's still gravel, it's still, or, you know, it's still tarmac, it still connects to the street itself. And so in this way, with the street, what we see is a kind of uh, a, a, an, uh, a gluing or a um, transformation, I would say, of that private sphere to the public, just like the self doesn't necessarily have defined boundaries perhaps through the street neither does my private life neither do, or neither does my private sphere sorry um i actually think a really good good example of this a really good illustration of this is any time i've sadly had an argument with family members and stormed out the house all of a sudden the appearance of the argument that has taken place raised voices etc etc is always is all, always comes to its apex with the slam of the door as I walk onto the street. And as such, the private sphere overflows onto the public. And so this is why I think that the street is so fascinating, because not only does it provide the infrastructure to allow us a livable life, both publicly and privately, and not only does it allow us the space to address grievances to engage in political activity par excellence proper um, uh, in public life, it provides a sort of odd connection between the two by being both and yet neither. Because it's also like the, the street outside my house, you know, is a public realm for three houses, three, four houses, but it, it's not really a public realm. In, in sort of a, a, a classical, traditional way of sort of senates and congresses or uh, national assemblies. But there is still something public and yet private about it. So, as always, I always like to try and do a little bit of etymology. Where does the word street come from? It actually comes from the old Latin strata via, which literally means paved way, right? Strata means paved. And I think that's really fascinating because I think there's a posit there of something genuinely political. Why? Because when we say something is paved, that is the outcome of an action, right? Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's to suggest that some individual, a group of individuals, laid this particular road down and as such when we use the term the street what we're immanentizing what we're bringing um, into discussion is the politics of a past time we're talking about the outcome of a public 
um, decision. We're talking about the outcome of a public activity to create that infrastructure that allows for a more livable life. Yeah, so I always think that's important to remember that whenever we talk about the street, there's always a there's always an emphasis of of work there. This brings us back to Arendt, actually, in the human condition. One of Arendt's three um, uh, parts of the vita activa, of the uh, active life, as she calls it, is work. First is labour, second is work, third is action. Labour, just very quickly, labour relates to sort of biological processes of being able to sustain one's um, uh, physical subsistence. So literally, for example, eating, drinking, going to the toilet, and most importantly, laboring, i.e. like bringing a child into existence. We cannot physically exist if we do not adhere to the activities of labor. Um, the third is political action. It's kind of uh, self-explanatory, but rather nuanced in her understanding. Uh, and the second is work. The street. Oh, so she begins this chapter by talking about how labor and work are often conflated um, as a result of uh, the Marxian use of the term labor, um, which is also present in Locke, if memory serves me right. But what she she suggests she suggests <laughs> is that work is another term for world building, i.e., like the world that we create between us. So a really good example that she gives is the creation of like the city walls in Athens, this or city walls in sort of ancient towns. This has to be a public exercise. It cannot be a single individual that builds the walls. I mean, it can be, but then it wouldn't be public property. You know, it has to be the creation of a world for people by people. And so I think that the street is the outcome of the world building that opens the potential for this space of politics okay so when we talk about and, and as i say like this is posited in the etymological origins of the term street in the sense that you know strutter is paved right it tells us that the street itself is part of is a creation is part of the world that was created between us and for us some time ago. I mean, that's actually one thing I always think about whenever I end up going to Rome, is whenever you walk around the old city, like, my question is always, of course, about the buildings around me and the beautiful architecture, but also how worn the paving stones are, right? You know, you think to yourself, like, I wonder how long ago the city decided to put these particular cobblestones down. When was that decided? And, you know, you think to yourself, ah, even if it's a thousand years ago, even if it's 50 years ago, I'm walking on cobbles that were laid for individuals that aren't necessarily in the world, but who worked for the world that I currently inhabit. And in this way, I think the street connects us to, you know, past past um, uh, citizens that we share time with. I mean, I remember when I think about it, a conservative thinker called G.K. Chesterton once said that um, uh, tradition is tradition, that tradition requires us giving votes to the strangest of all classes, our ancestors. And this is something I always think about in the sense of the world has been delivered to us from individuals who no longer exist. And as such, 
especially with physical architectural things, architectural existences, we literally walk on surfaces that were created for us by individuals who are no longer here with us. And I find that beautiful. I find that absolutely astonishing that if we go back, you know, 2000 years, you know, the Pantheon is still standing. The Pantheon is still standing. And to think that I can share a space that millions have shared before me just makes me feel so human. And I think this is something that the street allows us to do. I mean, if you walk down Whitehall in London, for example, you know, you feel connected to others. Not necessarily because it's a political connection, but I mean, you feel connected to all the other millions of individuals who have walked on those, have, has walked on that street. Anyway, one of the problems I always find with a rent is that this capability to appear, I think she presupposes. As we said at the beginning, assemblies are always, oh sorry, assembly on the street always includes those who are present, or those bodies who are present, and those bodies that are not. And there isn't necessarily always the ability to appear. I don't necessarily mean that in like an ableist way, um, in the sense of like suggesting that Hannah Arendt is an ableist, but there are some limitations as to the like the capability to appear for example if i'm a prisoner i can't appear in public to address certain grievances even though i'm still technically a civilian a civilian until certainly a citizen of the state even if my crime is minor you know i wouldn't necessarily be permitted the right to go and protest on the street for an, af for an afternoon in my yard time or something <laughs> it just wouldn't happen and so in this way, there isn't like the, the I think Arendt almost romanticizes this capability to appear. But I still think that that's a really interesting notion that she discusses, that she brings up, is this idea that as physical space collapses, the space for the political opens. And alongside that, like sometimes it's made particularly difficult for that to happen. Things like curfews make that really difficult to happen or things like uh, um, uh, you know a militarized society make that even more difficult to happen even though that might be the precise moment it has to happen okay so in this i think i'm trying to say that the street is the best example of the political space because it's the outcome of politics it's the site of politics. It's the site of being able to create something new in that politics. This is a concept Arendt has that she calls natality, is the fact that every individual brings something new to the world. And part of political action is the capacity to be able to enhance that or, or to sort of um, uh, take hold of that and bring something new into the world. You know, something that, you know, things, you know, think politically, things will happen in the future that you and I can't even fathom. And that will only be possible because there will be individuals that will come, that will bring new things to the table for that context. So, yeah, so the street is the outcome of politics. It's the site of political action. It's the site of natality as a result of that. And it's the place of bodily existence. As I say, like those assemb that assembly, that assemblage of bodies 
becomes a site for bodies to exist alongside one another in the power that they create through their assembly. What does this mean? This actually means that like one opens one's body to risk. Um, like when one protests, one opens up the potential to harm. Like one literally puts one's body on the line in that scenario. And one of the things I always like to think about this, that's a Butlerian point. Uh, that's one of Butler's points, um, is that one puts one's body on the line. One doesn't actually know what's going to happen um, uh, when one goes to a protest. Not necessarily, like, I, I, when I say the word protest, I try less to think about sort of uh, um, uh, what we experience in Britain and the United States as being protests. And I think more about the Tiananmen Square. For me, that's a, a genuine site of protest when one has no clue what is going to happen to one's body throughout the course of political action. And one of the things I, I always like to think about is perhaps the way in which that can become internalised into the private sphere, into the home. Can the home become the street? If the street can become the site for risk, if the street can become the site for bodily harm, precisely because of assembly and the risk that that assembly causes to whatever political entity through its power by assembly, perhaps in authoritarian or totalitarian um, uh, political systems and political cultures and political societies, they're very distinct, those two things, and they're very um, particular, but even so. Um, can the home become the street? Can the private sphere become an extension of the street? I was actually thinking about this a few days ago whilst watching, um, uh, whilst re-watching uh, a film that was up for an Oscar nomination last year in 2020 called Jojo Rabbit, which um, uh, is based on the, on the book Caging Skies. Um, and it's set in Nazi Germany, but there's a there's a particularly f uh, dark comedy, but it's a particularly funny scene um, uh, with David Merchant, um, and uh, he plays a Gestapo officer and just sort of waltzes into um, uh, a home with the other Gestapo officers, as if it were public space. And perhaps this is something that defines authoritarian or totalitarian rule or something that they share, perhaps, qualities that they share, is the way in which the private sphere, the street, no longer becomes a connector for uh, opening political space, but becomes the connection to having one's own political space and one's own capability to appear to create that space closed, right? It, it, it can be both the pathway to political emancipation and the addressing of grievances, and it can also be the opening for security forces or, you know, for, for secret police services or political police to treat your private space, to treat your private sphere as if it were part of the public. So I think that that political notion can work two ways. But perhaps in certain circumstances, the, the public political space that the street embodies, that the street represents, that it immanentizes, can perhaps ooze into the private sphere. So how perhaps, how can this help us think about 
political action in public spaces, whatever it be, whether it be right wing, left wing, centre, I hate those sort of that political spectrum of left and right. Um, but whatever political stripes, how can this particular analysis of the street in relation to bodies or this politics of the street make us think about how our political action can become more effective? One of the things that I was sort of thinking about when I was writing my notes for this with a cup of coffee this morning um, was Eric Hazan's work on the history of the barricade. So the word barricade comes from the French word barrique, which I believe means barrel. Um, and it's referred to that as within, I think it's the 1300s or 1400s, I might be wrong, um, uh, with the first sort of um, uh, popular protests in parts of France. It was the paving stones that were torn up from the road, placed in barrels and used to barricade the road. And I think that's particularly poignant because we know that the etymology of street is, as I say, stratovia, which is about having a paved way. There's something metapolitical, there's something extra political about understanding that the road, that the street beneath you represents politics to then pull that up and then use that in defence of the political space. So in this, I think that what we can see is that there can be a recasting of the public realm for its defence in the name of the space between individuals, in the name of the potential to political space. And I think that protests perhaps should begin or do or political action publicly, not necessarily in a, in a physical or a violent way, but should embody a barricadal attitude, right, to try and truly be political. And by this I mean to recast the popular space through its occupancy, through the assemblage of bodies, and use like the obstruction of that against those who would otherwise seek to close such a space. So perhaps the seizure or occupation of the street for the defence of the public space and the political space in between kind of is embodied by the street in itself. So yeah, I think that, as I say, I think there's many different avenues there. I don't know if all of that was particularly... Um, uh, <laughs> united or was com was you know coherent at all as i said i was just winging this one just sort of thinking it on the spot out loud so i'm kieran o'meara you've been listening to me talk on the Polit podcast the podcast for political posits tune in next week for another episode please like share subscribe click that little follow button and don't forget to go to the blog where there are citations for everything that's been discussed and more content Thank you very much for listening.